All right, I am hoping there is some news here. There are two envelopes. I never thought I'd be filing for unemployment. The stigma, the cliches, I'm quickly finding it's all true. Well, it looks like they need more information uh, before they can grant me any money. I'm Nate Dufort. Chances are you haven't heard of me. I'm a comedy producer, writer, and a director. For the entirety of my adult life, I've called one company home. And now, I can't. My job was social. My life, social. For comfort, I've always talked to people. As soon as I was let go, I started recording some of my conversations to help me in navigating the world post-employment. On this series, we'll be telling stories about leaps of faith, transition of all kinds, and falling flat on your face. This is Midstream, a podcast about change. Later in the episode, I'll be talking with Andrew Alexander, CEO and executive producer of The Second City, and until a few months ago, my boss. Now, if you're not familiar, The Second City is a comedy theater founded in 1959 with locations in Chicago, Toronto, and Los Angeles. The Second City alumni list is a who's who of American comedy, featuring such names as Alan Arkin, Fred Willard, Bill Murray, Gilda Radner, John Candy, John Belushi, Tina Fey, Tim Meadows, Stephen Colbert, and Steve Carell. And the list, it goes on and on. The Second City is more than just the comedy on its stages. It has enormous training centers and a newly opened Harold Ramis Film School. They also have a B2B division with a client list that's ridiculous. But more than that, for the last 17 years, The Second City was also where I worked. In my early 20s, I can admit to being unfocused. The only thing I knew was that I wanted to be in a creative environment where people pushed each other to be their best. I stumbled into an improv class and, as so many people do, had my mind blown. I found the freedom to express myself, to learn through failure without fear of serious consequence, and most importantly, I found the freedom to be myself. I was hooked. My time and experiences at Second City in all my various roles were some of the most difficult and rewarding of my life. I had no idea what I'd do without the place. But I can tell you that in the immediate aftermath of being laid off, I did what any comedian would do. I called my therapist. It's incredible how we get lost in our job. And if you're not careful, a job will take you in a direction you don't want to go. I'm a big believer that jobs find you, you don't find them. So... You know, and focusing on a new career or the next step in your, you know, wherever you're going, it's very important to ask yourself, the lifestyle I live now, will, will this afford me the same thing? Being, will the next job give me the time I want? Will the next job allow me the space to grow? 
Okay, so that's just one thing I want to keep in your preview. You know, right in your right in your zone there is, don't just jump to something because you get desperate. You want to jump to something now, or I would say walk into something now, which really supports your lifestyle. If there's any such thing as work-life balance, that is it, dude. I'd been without a job at this point for just a couple of days. The thought of jumping back into a 50, 60-hour-a-week job was daunting. I mean, how would you feel if suddenly the only thing you've known for years was gone? I needed some advice. I needed comfort. I needed tacos. JB is a longtime friend who worked at Gotham Comedy Club and put Second City's Up Comedy Club on the map. And like me, she'd recently been let go. So I heard that you got let go. And I texted you and I said, hey, let's go meet up and grab uh, some food at Big and Little. One of the best uh, taco joints um, in Chicago. So, I, yeah, because I just, I knew how it felt and I wanted to see how you were doing. And, you know, because you're one of my favorite people. And, you know, at Second City, especially, like, you know, you're always checking up on me. So I really, you know, it was important for me to check up on you. And, you know, I'm so grateful to that place for the friendships I made. I remember telling you, whatever you're going to do, it's it's going to, like, go somewhere because you the access to people, you know, the connections, you know, you have so much going for you. I mean, I don't know if there's truly the grounds for that level of encouragement, but JB was right. I'm actually pretty lucky. I do have a lot going for me and a lot of people I can reach out to. And that's exactly what took me back to Second City, just over a month after I was let go. So I just pulled into the parking structure here at Piper's Alley, the corner of Northern Wells and Old Town in Chicago. And it doesn't feel weird at all. Um, This is where I have been working for just shy of nine years um, of my 17 years uh, at Second City. Um... It's weirdly comfortable. We're going to go in in preparation for our interview with Andrew Alexander. Can you hear that? I am nervous. Why am I going back to the place that just laid me off? Looking at where I'm at in this moment, I'm lost. It's scary, but also exciting. I'm in my 30s and have to figure out what's next. So why am I here? Well, it's to talk to someone who went through something similar. I want to see what I can take away from this man I admire and see what he's learned over the years in growing this company. Maybe something I hear will help me determine my own future. I walk into the administrative offices and back to my old conference room to greet Andrew, and we jump right in talking about what Second City means to him. Uh, The Second City, to me, is... um a lot of things, you know, it, it was a kind of a lifesaver for me, you know, um, when I got involved in the early seventies and it, it, you know, it was a, a place that I, I found by, not by accident, but sort of by accident, you know, when I came to Chicago to get a job here, you know, as soon as I saw watching the, particularly watching the improv sets, I just have some for affinity for the sort of anarchism that was going on and bad boyism 
and it, it immediately somehow hit a chord with me. So, you know, for me personally, it was a, uh, I found myself at home just very rapidly, you know, and I had been floating around in my 20s. So to me, it's, uh, and, you know, this sense of family that we have uh, developed over the last 30, 40, 50 years, you, you know, is, is true, you know, and I felt that right away. Him and I both. Second City is the island of misfit toys to so many of us who are looking to create, improve, and just seeking a place to belong. So I asked him how he met Bernie Sollins, then owner of the Second City, and came to take over the Toronto location. I was familiar with uh, Second City a little bit because they had performed in the 60s in in the Royal Alex Theatre in Toronto. I got to meet Bernie, and then they opened a theatre, and at the same time I had moved to Chicago, so I got to know them even better. I used to hang out at the bar here. They opened for three months at a location in Toronto. They didn't get a liquor license, they didn't have air conditioning, and it closed. So Bernie and I started talking right away, and I said, you know, let me give it a crack. And he had some debts, and I said, I'll look after the debts. I borrowed $7,000 from a friend of mine and found a location, a new location. And my first cast was Gilda Radner, Dan Aykroyd, Eugene Levy, John Candy. Um, you know, so it was a pretty good start. Yeah. Is it is the rumor true that the, the deal was detailed out on out? Bar napkin? Pretty well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of been blown a little out of proportion because there was, I'd always said I bought it for a dollar, but that, that came out of, you know, in an agreement, you have to have some sort of consideration when we actually put an agreement together. I mean, Bernie, we had a royalty arrangement, so he, but Bernie was really good with me because for a year I didn't pay the royalties. I couldn't afford to, and he was a cool guy. He, he kind of let me get away with it for a while. We had a lot of arguments about it, but at the end of the day, he, I think he really, you know, had a lot of confidence, you know, that I would pay it at some point. I was lucky enough to get close to Bernie in his final years, and he is without question one of the largest characters and most influential figures in my life. He, with Paul Sills and Howard all created a theater company that altered American comedy and introduced improvisation to the masses. But theater is hard. It's low profit margin, very high risk, and most companies just don't last. I asked Andrew what drew him to what was arguably an awful career decision. Well, you have to remember, I was, you know, I didn't have a job per se. I mean, really, I mean, I was, like I said, I had misspent youth. I mean, I had, um, you know, I was an advertising salesman for newspapers. You know, I was a shrubbery salesman. I was a cab driver. Uh, then I owned a couple of speakeasies. And the speakeasies actually is the place that kind of got me into uh, the, I'd say, the true entertainment business because a friend of mine, Richie York, um, knew John Lennon. And he uh, he was a journalist in Toronto, and he called John Lennon and and a couple of other guys that were the money, money, biz, money guys. And they said, well, let's do a peace festival because it was right after Woodstock. And let's do a peace festival in Toronto with you, John. And John said, yes. And he flew over, and there was a big press conference at uh, the Science Center in Toronto. And he, um, before you know it, this, it was big, the biggest thing in the world, actually, overnight. And they asked me if I would look after the marketing, and I have no idea why they did that. But pre- everybody was pretty inexperienced. But it was a very exciting time because this Rolling Stone magazine had just started. Uh, Woodstock was, you know, 
you know, so iconic even then. So, and every rock and roll band in the world wanted to be part of it. And so I was kind of in that mix. So it was pretty, uh, pretty lofty, heady stuff. And um, so, but it all unraveled when John uh, Lennon said, I want it to be for free, you know, which was uh, probably a little challenge. And we were also being harassed by the government because of, Ultima had happened, you know, and so there was that and facility issues, but it was an incredible year. Anyway, to, when it all sort of unraveled and everybody kind of went their different ways, I ended up working at a small theater for $25 a week. Uh, Gilda Radner was uh, working in the box office. Dan Aykroyd and Valerie Bromfield were a comedy team because I used to do this thing from midnight to six in the morning. It was jazz, poetry, dance, uh, comedy. It was, you know, just an eclectic mix of entertainment. So that really, I got the bug. And then um, then somehow I got a job at a, a legit theater selling subscriptions. And that gave me some knowledge of the theater business. And that's what, I got, I got very good at it. And that's why I got hired in Chicago. But so, but to answer your question, I mean, I didn't have any money, uh, so, uh, you know, I was probably making a couple hundred bucks a week at, the, at the, the, the best of times. So, you know, it was, the theater didn't, the, the challenge of theater not being a profitable business really didn't occur to me, because I was in a non-profit business <laughs> with my life. Yeah. The first couple of years found it difficult to find an audience. The staff gave free beer to folks just to get them into the shows. Then, in 1976... It's Second City Television, now beginning its programming day. SCTV, the sketch comedy television show that introduced us to media satire and parody unlike anything seen before in the U.S. As soon as I was allowed to stay up late enough to see the show in syndication, I knew I was a fan for life. Bernie had always uh, wanted to do TV, more TV. He'd done a couple of TV specials in London. And he kept bugging me because he said, you know, why don't you, because I think he felt it was easy to do there because of government support. So he kept bugging me and bugging me. And I said, Bernie, I'm, you know, barely keeping the thing alive here. So, uh, but then eventually I relented and uh, I said, okay, let's see what we can do. So I got a broadcaster uh, that was interested in funding a pilot and we, uh, I used the cast that I had at the time, which was uh, Eugene Levy, Dave Thomas, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, um, and then Bernie brought up Harold and Joe Flaherty, and I think that's that was yeah that was the group, and, and John Candy, and we all sat in a room one day with Del Close, and spent about a half an afternoon kicking around ideas, and it. There's no one person I can remember being responsible for specifically for the conceit of the show, but you know, the, the, it came out of that meeting where you know we were going to sort of create this sort of um, um, this network, you know, this uh, imaginary network, and um, that was where it all started. So you know, I I got uh, and that's how I got Len involved. He, he lent, lent us thirty five thousand dollars. And that gave us seven shows. And seven became 13, 13 became 26. And, you know, and that in itself was, 
again, a huge challenge just trying to keep the show on the air, you know. And eventually we got picked up by NBC and we started doing a 90-minute show. And, you know, then it became, you know, we got Emmy nominations and it won enemies and, you know, it was a cult, cult hit for, for many, many years. The conversation started to turn to the creative and what made Second City unique, something I believe attracted both Andrew and I. The voice of the theater is that of its artists. The actors improvise, write, and perform whatever is on their minds. You can see the news of the day put on stage that night. See generational shifts happen right before your eyes. It's incredible. As a business, it's irresponsible. And for me, it was absolutely addictive. Uh, I've always had a very, very strong philosophy, and right from the very beginning, because I knew what I didn't know, which was a lot. And, uh, you know, what I did glean from, you know, how it worked in Chicago was, you know, get the best, smartest people on that stage, you know, and let them do their thing. And that was my philosophy with the TV show. You know, they were the best and the brightest. And, uh, you know, uh, other than supporting them, you know, with, you know, making sure that the show got produced properly, you know, I let them do their thing. And I that has pretty well followed my philosophy throughout, you know, uh, since then. And then I've always felt get the best people in the room and let them, whatever they want to do, let them do, you know. And sometimes that works extremely well and sometimes not as well as you would like. But over the course of my uh, career, it's mostly worked. Well, there have been times that we've seen where that's definitely needed a push as well. And it's been pretty widely reported on, but your response to the L.A. riots in the 90s and wanting to push for more diversity and integration in the company, it's important for obvious reasons, but why personally with you? Well, that was a, you know, a jarring event in uh, in Los Angeles. And my wife and I and my son Tyler were living there. And, you know, it was and I, that, the night that I flew back, you know, I flew back from L.A. and you, you know, it was, you know, the, it was a lot of the part of L.A. were on fire. So, and I flew back to Chicago and I got here and I came, decided to come straight to the theater. And I saw, you know, six white actors trying to deal with the issues that were going on. And it was quite evident they were struggling. And that was that was the night I said, you know, this is this. We are not reflecting the world we live in. This is a bubble. And so that was the day it was born you know and so we we started you know very gradually but yes it's it's, we have to reflect the world we live in and if you don't have people of diverse voices you know you're you're living truly in a bubble and um and i'm very pleased of how it's kind of worked out where it's always a challenge to encourage more talent but you know i think over the last 15 years we've really done a great job of making sure the voices are there you know detroit though i will say we really jump started i think our diversity efforts because you know the it was a you know we were in downtown detroit so <clears throat> those casts mostly reflected that that world there was particularly when we started you know having more uh, actors of color into our casts there was some resistance from the community here in Chicago. I mean, from the, the felt that, hey, you haven't paid your dues and, you know, this is affirmative action. And I'm talking about the, the talent base here. And, you know, so there was a bit of a challenge there. But, um, you know, we fought through it. And, uh, you know, now I think, you know, I mean, the challenge now is always to keep the system, you know, fresh and alive and try and encourage more people to do the work. In 2016... 
the second city opened a review entitled A Red Line Runs Through It on its ETC stage. The show had edge, was current, and told it like it is. Here is a selection from one of my favorite scenes, Black Girl Magic. With scenes like that, A Red Line Runs Through It was a hit, and it didn't hold back, targeting racism, the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, and gun violence in the city. Audience reception, too, was positive. Mostly. You see, the cast was taking on the difficult topics, and audiences were right there with them, save for a few that responded not just with opposing opinions, but in some cases, hate speech, directed at both the cast and fellow audience members which prompted Alexander and company to hang a sign at the theater's entrance reading, Second City has a zero-tolerance policy and does not allow hate speech of any kind, whether it's directed towards our artists, employees, or patrons. Those verbalizing any homophobic, misogynistic, xenophobic, racist, or prejudiced comments will be asked to leave. Well, we came through a very difficult time. You know, uh, we had a show here, Red Line through, Runs Through It, and there was a lot of... Um, cast discontent in that show and there was uh, there was uh, there was a feeling that you know th there were some elements in the show and a couple of the actors felt that uh, you know the the ca the audience was being you know uh, uh, a little too aggressive with their language um, and we may not have adjusted to that rat fast enough but it was a very quick a learning moment for us and you know we realized that you know we had to be a lot more attentive to supporting the talent in a way that we probably haven't done in the past because of the the level of rhetoric that has been created over the last year in the polit political environment so yes we've become very diligent in making sure that we're responding to the concerns that actors have and even audiences i mean because 99 percent of the audiences are you know come here and are on our side you know is the two or three jerks that can kind of ruin it for everybody. And, and that unfortunately did happen. But uh, I think we are in a very interesting moment. And I just watched the main stage show last night and it's, they've done an incredible job of responding to the, the environment that we're in and, you know, the, the political change that no one anticipated and they've done it in a very fresh, energetic way, and you know, and that's exactly what we do. It's very important to remember that we express ourselves through what those people do on those stages, and you know, we have to support that. And anything 
they ask and they want, we're going to have to do, we give, we need to give it to them. So right now we have to show them that this is a safe place and uh, this is not a, um, this is not idle talk. You know, we're putting in things in place that uh, make it, that actors will feel safe here and artists to express themselves. And as our conversation was coming to a close, we talked about what was next for the second city. Could have predicted at the time that, you know, improvisation would take off like it has in terms of a, um, uh, an educational um, tool, and uh, you know, it's 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 attracted people for for all different kinds of reasons. You know, to want to do take improvisation. It's not just about I hey, I want to become an actor. Um, and you know, I think what helped it a lot was whose lines whose line is it anyway, which was a, a television show was uh, that uh, two of our alumni were in. Uh, uh, Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles, and I think that uh, established a sort of awareness, more awareness. I think our touring business, you know, uh, tour, uh, uh, um, showed the universe, college kids, you know, that the, displayed the work. Um, you know, I think we've kind of um, led the way in terms of you know making, and. This building has given, by the way, us the ability to grow organically. You know, space came available at the time we wanted more classroom space. And, you know, uh, having great management up there, or Carrie Sheehan, you know, has done a great job of, you know, growing that business. And, um, uh, you know, and then you had Improv Olympic, which, you know, uh, has fostered, a, you know, a very uh, large improv Loyal, uh, loyal Improv, UCB in New York, UCB in L.A. So it's become a North American thing, you know, and I would say a worldwide thing now, actually. And, uh, uh, you know, and you have to remember where it all started. It started, you know, with Paul Sills and Viola. Um, and it's become a way of life, I think, for a lot of people. You know, it's become part of how they live their life. So it's it's a lifestyle and, you know, wellness opportunity. It's quite of extraordinary i'm always you know the fact that we have expanded and you know we built out the harold ramus school which i'm very pleased with how that's evolving and you know and how that complements uh what we're doing in the work with improvisation and you know storytelling now and how important narrative is and you know so uh, you know again i think we're leading the way it was great that i got a chance to go back to second city and talk with andrew I loved my time there, and I love the people. Just like JB and I discussed over tacos, I have a community, and there's something to talking to people and hearing their stories. Not all the stories are going to end like Andrew's, but as I look for how I'm going to pay next month's bills, at least I can set my sights on what's possible versus getting tied up in just how hard everything seems right now. On the next episode of Midstream, I'll talk to a laid-off IT person who turned his longtime hobby into a million-dollar company, and I'll debate the benefits of vulnerability in times of need. Our theme song is by Vlad Burkhamer. Logo by Matthew Rader. Midstream is looking for sponsors. If you or someone you know could be interested, or if you want to share your own story of being laid off, please email at nate at midstreampodcast.com. 
Midstream exists because of you, the listeners. And there's one huge way you can help. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It only takes a second and sure would mean a lot to us. Many thanks to Andrew Alexander, Dr. Colin, Eleanor Riley Condit, and most of all, to JB, Jennifer Beltran Winkin. The scene you heard from A Red Line Runs Through It featured Asia Lachey Bullock, Lisa Beasley with Katie Klein and Julie Marciano. 